Okay. Um, good morning, everybody. Did I hear a holler? Did I hear a hoot? That was amazing. Um, <laughs> all right. Whoa. Okay. I love it. I love it. So, Sid, that's my name. Okay. Once again, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conference. I've had a really great time. Thanks for loving me well. Um, and I hope that we can end this on a good note. Uh, about Jesus and that he's paid it all. What a beautiful song to intro into what we're going to talk about with forgiveness. Um, But before we say forgiveness, I'm just going to ask for a little recap from you all. What have we been talking about? Relationships? Fall? Jesus? I hear those two already? Well, well done. You guys have learned a lot this weekend. Um, Science? Okay. What was that? Genesis 1 and 3. What's a Jonah 1? Anything else? Bueller, Niner. Okay. Um, what? It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Yes. Beautiful. Okay. Um, so we're still talking about ending with relationships. And I want to make it really clear what I mean by relationships. Um, you know, this is what we do when we go to bed. We think about this. We think about this when we wake up. It is who we are and what we do. And this is what I mean by that. I'm not just talking about, like, whether you're dating somebody and things are hot and heavy. Okay. That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like how you relate to your family, how you relate to your friends, how do you relate to your classmates. I mean, who shares a locker next to you? What do they think of you? Are they giving you the stink eye? Are they smiling at you? Your life, my life, is defined by what people think of us. And this is why Paul in his letters says to say over and over again, I am a bond servant to Christ Jesus. Because otherwise, we are all bond servants to other people's opinions of us. That's why relationships are what we obsess over. That's why relationships are so crucial to who we are. Because we're constantly worried about the impression that we're making with other people. And we're constantly worried about their impression of us. So, in one, at least one perspective, relationships, that is loving, being loved, knowing, and being known, is what life is all about. And that's why we spent a whole weekend talking about this. And I hope you've seen the reality of that. This isn't just about whether you've got a special someone that you hold hands with in the, in the dark. Okay, this is about more than that. It's about your entire life is a series of relationships. And I hope you start to think about those relationships, what's great about them and what's not so great about them. Uh, We've also been really careful, uh, try to be careful, about studying these biblically. To look at relationships biblically, looking at passages of scripture, thinking through what God wants to tell us, what God's word wants to tell us about the topic of relationships. And then finally, within the idea of scripture, there's essential message, the gospel. The good news. And I'm going to quote my final person. So I've quoted a bunch of people so far. Uh, I paraphrased a guy named Kevin Twitt the first night. Uh, we, talked, we talked to Jack Miller and then Paige Benton-Brown, which I still enjoy that name quite a bit. I'm sorry. Um, and then we're talking about C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis says about the good news, the gospel. And I really want you to capture this. Because we're being so frank about sin, we can be so frank about Jesus. Okay? The honesty that the gospel brings about is huge. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. Two things. First, we can't even trust ourselves in our best moments. We can't trust ourselves in the best moments. Second, we don't need to despair in our worst moments. So we can't trust ourselves in our best moments because God is better and holier than we think he is. And we, can't, we don't need to despair in our worst moments because God loves us in Jesus Christ a lot more than we think he does. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel is about. 
tonight we're moving out of the Old Testament. Uh, you thought I was going to camp out there the whole time, didn't you? Well, I'm not going to. We talked about Genesis, we talked about Jonah, and tonight we're going to talk about Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're looking at a parable on forgiveness. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. So if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, I'll give you guys a second. We're going to talk about forgiveness. Surprising. By the way, as you're turning there, uh, thanks for dealing with my voices. I mean, still dead sexy, but definitely sick. I appreciate that, um, that you dealt with that. And also, I recorded these things. I don't know, that's what I keep doing. That's why I'm fiddling around. It takes like this awkward 10 seconds before every time I get up. I recorded this. I'm going to try to put them on our website. This is, this is really thick material, okay? Like, I'm giving you really, really dense stuff. And I want you to, maybe it's a good way to unpack it, is to kind of go back to it and listen to it another time. And I'll give your youth leaders the information about where my website is, but if you just Google RUF at New Mexico State University, you'll find it. And I'll post it. That is if I understand how to use technology, which is not a given, okay? Um, I'm really bad at it. I majored in ancient history, so you're going to have to excuse that. Okay, so I don't have that ability. So, uh, so Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Would you stand for the reading of scripture? Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, And said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, the heavens and earth will pass away. I say this every time, but it's very important. Before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I'm not really sure what that creaking sound is behind me, uh, but I pray that you would settle our minds and focus our hearts, that you would um, be with us. We're thinking about the road trip already. We're thinking about going home already. Some of us are already in our beds at home already. And I pray that you would keep us here and keep us focused and help us to not already go into the school day on Tuesday. But right now, right here, 
work your work. Your spirit moves. He is powerful, and I pray that he would do the work that you've accomplished him to do, to apply the redemption of Jesus Christ on that cross to us right now, through the preaching of your word. And I pray, Lord, this has been a wonderful uh, weekend of humility for me, as I felt terrible. Um, And I pray that you would continue to use your word and exalt Christ through it, and help us to, to just understand in the depths of our beings what it means that you love us. And what it means that you loved us when we were unlovely. And you're loving us into being lovely. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. So when I was a little boy, uh, my my older sister and I have an older sister named Courtney. And we used to watch a series of three Dr. Seuss cartoons. We watched them so often on this VHS that the VHS started to have like a line through it. I don't know if this is maybe technologically way, way beyond your time, but it had like a line of fuzz in the middle of the TV because we watched it so often. Um, it was one of these things my dad had, in his infinite wisdom, recorded this off of some TV special, and it was three Dr. Seuss cartoons that we watched a lot. Um, and I'd like to talk about these cartoons for a second and what they had, the emotional impact they had on me when I was a kid. The first story was one that maybe you're familiar with. It involved these giant yellow birds called Sneetches. Ah, Sneetches. Okay? Uh, and they had a con man, and this is the best name ever, by the way. Sylvester McMonkey McBean. Okay? That's, that's my next kid. I'm just going to tell my wife right now. The Sylvester McMonkey McBean Druin. Okay? And this guy, Sylvester, had a star on machine for the Sneetches, and it becomes this whole competition about who has the best star. And this story was fun for me as a kid. And I think about it every time I drive by a tanning salon. If you want to ask me more about that later, I can talk to you more about that later, but let's move on. Second, the, story, the second story that I used to watch, that cartoon, was about an industrialist named Wunzler, and who cuts down a forest into a wasteland and this walrus-looking thing named a Lorax that protests eloquently against this destruction. And this story, to be honest, just scared the living everything out of me. I was freaked out. I felt like if I didn't recycle, I might actually just get this walrus guy attached to my ankle and he'll never let go. It was miserable. Uh, so I'm still a little bit scared when I don't recycle. That's just a confession. Jesus has paid it all. Okay. Third story uh, involved two Zaxes, okay, a north-going Zax and a south-going Zax, who met in the prairie of Prax. Um, you, know, you know why Dr. Seuss is a doctor? Because of rhymes like that. Okay, I'm just going to put them on the table. Zaxx, Prax, doesn't get better, doesn't get better. Anyway, so these two Zaxxes run into each other almost physically on this prairie, going north and south, and neither refuses, every, both of them refuse to move. They won't move to the east or to the west. And so in the cartoon version, there's this time-lapse photography. These two bear-looking people, arms crossed with scowls, standing across from each other. There's this time-lapse photography where the world around them changes. It goes from a prairie to a town, to a city, and eventually they build an overpass around them and over them. Okay? And there they are, still standing with scowls on their faces and arms crossed, refusing to move. My child said conclusion about this cartoon, it was just plain sad. It was sad. Here's the reason I took a little bit longer to talk about the Zaxes than everything else. This sad story about the Zaxes refusing to yield is a helpful picture for us in our relationships. 
Don't get me wrong. Most of us don't get offended when someone goes down the wrong side of the aisle at Walmart. Okay? We're, right, we're on the right side. That person on the left, they go, okay, if you want to walk like you're in England, that's fine. I'm not going to get mad at you, Governor. But, you know, like, be my guest. Do it. Um, but that's not our problem. But if we're honest, frustrations, small Zach's-like frustrations, hinder a lot of our relationships. Some of, some of these are very small. We never got to know the person that we sit near in class, or we never really got to know the person that we slept in the same room in at Lone Tree. And you know, every time we say hi outside of the room or outside of class, that we like wave, and that person just sort of like looks through our wave, and we kind of go to ourselves, he or she's dead to me, dead to me. I don't have to deal with this. And so when you wave, you kind of go to this whole like, I'm brushing my hair. You know, have you ever done that where someone walks and you're like, that person doesn't respond to you, and you're just like, ah, right, right, okay, let's move on. So, so and then in the moment after that, you're like, that person's dead to me. I mentally cut them off. And then there's these people that, again, small things, they never are the person that initiates anything. They have no social etiquette. You call them, you text them. Every time you want to do something fun, you invite them, and they never invite you to do anything fun ever. But some of your frustrations with your friends, your near friends, your family, your girlfriends, your would-be girlfriends, are much bigger. Someone has gotten loud and angry and violent, and maybe they never really apologized. Or you're ignored. Someone used you as a confessor, or someone used you for comfort, maybe sexually, and you agreed because you were lonely and tired, and you thought maybe she liked you. And this social frustration, small or big, has gotten irritated over time and throbs. It throbs so much that it feels like a weight. It feels like a weight around your neck and around the, wet, the neck of your relationships. And as I talked about this weekend, the Bible is very clear about this. Okay, so remember, we're made to relate. We have these longings deep inside of us, in the pits of our stomach, in our hearts, to be known and to know, to love and to be loved. But sin, the selfish opposite of love, has wrecked our relationships. They've made them a mess. And we said, we've asked this question before, how do we move forward? How do we move forward in relationships? How do we stand with each other? We talked about one gospel cure, repentance, right? And I define repentance, if you remember, as the motion that draws sinners like you and me together. But repentance is really only for when we hurt someone else. Okay? Repentance is, is what we do when, when we hurt someone else. But what do we do when someone else hurts us? Let's go back to the Monty Python Black Knight example for a second. There you are hopping around on one emotional leg. The other one's been severed by someone's comment. And you're spewing your emotions and pain all over the place into the camera. Um, what do you do? What do you do in that situation? How do you handle that? And a lot of you have had this situation, whether you want to admit it or not. Whether you want to go there or not, I'm just going to go there. We need some other cure. We need there's someone the gospel is to speak to us in a certain way. And not surprisingly, the way the gospel speaks to us in that moment of extreme pain and woundedness, whether small or big, is forgiveness. What is forgiveness? This is my definition. Forgiveness is the glue that holds sinners like you and me together. So if repentance is the motion that moves us towards each other, Repentance is the glue, or forgiveness is the glue that holds us together. And I'm going to go back to the idea if you don't get that. So let me quote Dan Allender. Dan Allender is a, a Christian author, uh, 
counselor. He puts their need for forgiveness well. He says this, Given the reality that love is not possible, at least for long, without the healing work of forgiveness. Forgiveness enables love. So let me say it again. Given the reality of sin, love is not possible, at least for long, without the healing work of forgiveness. Here's the deal. Forgiveness enables love. I'm telling you. I, is that haunted? <laughs> it's like someone's walking back and forth behind me. It's kind of like, uh, it's eerie. Okay. I believe in Jesus, not ghosts. I believe in Jesus, not ghosts. Okay. Um, our passage this morning offers a wonderful tutorial on forgiveness. We explains how forgiveness can heal and empower our relationships. So it's really important that we grasp this, okay? It's really significant. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, tell us two things. But first, let me tell you what the main point is. For our relationships to have life, we need to practice forgiveness, to receive forgiveness from God, and to give it to other people. For our relationships to have life, we need to practice forgiveness, to receive forgiveness from God, and to give it to other people. It's that basic, and it's that hard. So, let's look at the passage about how the passage explains forgiveness. How, how it works. Verses 21 through 27. By the way, this is two points, not three. I know, guys. I know. I know. You thought everything had to be a three-point sermon, but it doesn't. I'm breaking out of the mold. There's, this, this place might be haunted, but I'm going to keep going. Okay. So, verses 21 through 27. How forgiveness works. Okay. Second, verses 28 through 35, why is it so hard to forgive? So we're going to look at how forgiveness works in verses 28 through 27. In verses 28 through 35, we're going to look at why is it so hard to forgive. Those are our two points. Let's start with where the passage starts, verse 21. And Peter's question. Here's what I love about the Bible. Okay, This is so real. This is about real people doing real things. Peter is like everybody here. He is a real guy, and he has real questions on his heart and his mind, just like we do. Like many of us here, Peter calls himself a Christian and follows Jesus. And in the course of following Jesus, he hears an incredibly hard message. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, the passage before we're looking for. Let me just summarize it. It's about church discipline. And church discipline is about what you do when someone sins against you. There's a whole process. You tell someone, you confront the person. You confront the person with two people. You confront people with the church. There's a whole process of what you do. And this is where like Peter has that Genesis 3 aha moment. Hold on a second. My relationships aren't perfect. What? That's right. I have a lot of pain and frustration. There's a lot of self-centered harm and hurt in my relationships. This makes it hard to bear. And then Jesus, he realizes this. Jesus is asking him this. In all of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is saying this. Jesus is asking people like Peter and asking people like us to glue these relationships back together with forgiveness. So there's brokenness because of sin. And Jesus is saying, well, how do you handle that brokenness? You glue it back together with forgiveness. And here's the deal. Simply put, forgiveness is relationship glue. It doesn't make your friendships brand new again. It can't. But it makes them whole again. So let's look at verse 21. Peter's asking Jesus, how many times or how long do I have to keep gluing these broken relationships with hard people back together again? How long? How many times? This is our question too, right? How many times do I have to forgive people when they ignore me or hurt me or say mean things to me or about me? 
How many times do I have to do that when they hurt me or ignore me? And this is what I love. Peter gives this really optimistic answer in the form of a question. Seven times. Seven times. And you know, like, this is like eager beaver overachiever. I don't know if you realize this. Like, in the, in the day of Peter, the rabbis had a three-strikes-you're-out policy. And this is what it looked like. If a person sins against you three times, you're required to forgive them three times. But on the fourth sin, you're not required to forgive anymore. So let me just overextend this analogy, because that's what I do for a living. Uh, the offender had, had struck out on the fourth pitch. And you do not have to, no longer have to pitch your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts, or your love to him or her anymore. Does that make sense? So that's the, that was the policy of the rabbis of that day. And so Peter thought he was way overachieving when he said, seven times do I have to forgive? Because the requirement was three. He's doing twice the maximum. But what is Jesus' answer to Peter about how many times we forgive people in verse 22? The answer is seven times 70. This isn't a literal number. I'm just going to put that on the table. I don't mean the Bible's not literal. I just mean that the, the number isn't... It's not like you forgive someone 490 times when they sin against you 490 times, and the 491st time, you don't forgive them. Jesus is combining two perfect numbers, 70 and 7, and saying, look, every time you forgive someone, every time they sin against you. Every time. Whether they ask for forgiveness and admit they're wrong, or whether they don't. And we're going to talk a lot more about what forgiveness is and isn't. But let me put this on the table about what it isn't. Jesus does not mean by forgiveness that you don't pursue justice for crimes against you or your family. That's not what he's talking about. Sometimes love looks like giving people consequences. Alright, verse 23 and following. Let's, Let's look down there. So you've seen that Jesus kind of expands. He says what forgiveness is. He gives some clever math. And now he's going to give us a wonderful story about and bringing it home. He's expanding and clarifying what he means by 70 times 7. What it means to forgive people. It isn't a compelling story, and it's about a king and his servants. And it helps us move past our false ideas about what forgiveness is and isn't. And towards a true knowledge of how forgiveness works. So think about this parable as an explanation about how to forgive, or how forgiveness works. So, are we pretty familiar with this parable, by the way? Ish? Eh? Alright, well that's convincing. Okay, um, let's look at verses 23 through 27. This is Jesus' story, and a king, clearly God, decides to settle accounts with his servants, his people, people like you, like me, and like Peter. Okay? So when God, call, when, when God the king calls a particular servant in front of him in the story, you should put yourself in that situation. You should imagine yourself as that servant in front of the king. And God calls that servant to address the $10,000 debt, or 10,000 talents, excuse me, debt before him. But let's stop at verse 24 for a second. That's where we are. Do you realize how much the servant owes the king? I think we lose this in the, in the, in the name talents, okay? It's not $10,000, that's why I had to correct myself. I've done some rough math, okay? 10,000 talents equals roughly $5 billion. $5 billion, okay? I know it's not our nation's debt, but it's a lot of money for an individual. That is five, that's the number five, with nine zeros before you get to the cents, the decimal point, and then the cents part. Nine zeros and a five. 
Okay, let me just give you perspective. In verse 26, the servant promises to pay the king. That is a huge joke. If he sold everything that he had, sold himself and sold his family into slavery, he would pay ten talents. Ten. That is one one one-thousandth of the debt. Everything he has, his whole family, in slavery. One one one-thousandth of the debt. Paying this back is not an option. It's a joke. Second, do you realize what the servant owes the king? What does the servant owe the king? Look, if the parable, as the, as the parable suggests, if Peter, you, and I are the servant, what is the nature of our debt? Debt is the biblical way of talking about sin. Sin before us, before others, and before God. Think about the Lord's Prayer for a second. Look at, you can look at Matthew 6, 12. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord's Prayer, sin is called a debt. So that's actually why it should be properly translated. This is my one classical language aside. The whole weekend, I'm not fluent in Latin, by the way. Just a, that, was, that was a misinformation. But I do know some ancient languages. And this is one thing. It's very important. That, that the Lord's Prayer says, And forgive us our debts, not trespasses, as we have forgiven our debtors, not the trespasses against us. Here's why. The Greek word, I'm going to botch the pronunciation, ophilema, ophilema does not mean trespass. It means debt. Okay? Why is that important? Why is that important? Because the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, this passage made clear that sin, the way that we intentionally or unintentionally hurt people, including ourselves, others, and hurt God, is costly. It has a cost to it. Sin is a cost that creates a moral debt. Are you following this, the financial metaphor that's going on here? Why is this important? This is the reason that our relationships feel heavy, because they are bearing the spiritual weight of sin. The harm that I or another person inflicts runs up a spiritual bill. Do you get this metaphor? Someone, must, someone maybe, maybe me, maybe the person, has to start paying off that bill to make our relationships less heavy. And how do you pay off a bill, morally speaking? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the way you pay the cost of sin. Let me explain this point with a story. Another analogy. Okay? This is a true story, actually, that happened. And it was a former student of mine in RUF named Chrissy. A few years ago, Chrissy went on a first date with a guy. And the guy decided to be classy. And he took her to a really nice sushi place in Las Cruces called Aqua Reef. I mean, if it's called Aqua Reef already, like, you know, say it like, we're on the coast. You know, our hair is slicked back. We're wearing pastel. I mean, that's what we're, Aqua Reef is in it, okay? Everyone wears black. It's a nice, it's a nice place. Okay. Anyway, so they go inside, they get seated, and they begin to have that, they alternate between like awkward conversation and studying the menu. I mean, this is a first date. Maybe some of you have been on that. Maybe you've seen it on TV. Maybe you've heard stories from your parents. Anyway, so they start with having like a few topics. I can imagine the scene. I feel like they, they said a few topics and everything kind of stalled. You know, they have these conversations like, how was your day? Good. Yours? Good. Crickets. Everyone's like suddenly thirsty, like reaching for their water. Oh, please. <laughs> I've never been so thirsty in my life. It's so awkward. Okay? That's sort of what's going on in the situation. And there's this like long pause until the next person can like bear to bring up another conversation topic. This is, what it, this is how it works. Uh, some of you haven't done this yet. Okay. That's why you go to a movie. Anyway, just aside. <laughs> okay, so, at least you can just watch the screen. Okay, so, 
Anyway, Chrissy and her date are enjoying this meal together, or this awkward pre-meal conversation menu, drinking water thing going on. And all of a sudden, ten feet from them, there's this giant crash. Huge crash, shakes the building, everything. And they look over, and a car has driven through the wall. And there are the two front tires, the hood, the hood ornament, and the grill, right near their table. Literally in the middle of the restaurant, amid like amid the amazing like soft classical music, the servers dressed all in black, the beautiful sushi and sashimi presentations, there is a car in the middle of the dining room. And this is where it gets better. The action continues. The driver jumps out of the car and yells, I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop. Like you're going to say anything else. <laughs> I meant to do it, I meant to do it. I mean, <laughs> anyway. So the owner of Aqua Reef had a few options at this moment. He could demand that the driver pay him for the damages to his restaurant. He, the owner, could offer to pay for the wall replacement himself. Or maybe the driver and the owner could work out some sort of agreement where they each paid a percentage of the damages. And I don't really know what happened with the sort of who paid for what, but I do know one thing. Someone had to pay. Someone had to pay. Maybe it was the owner or maybe it was the driver, but someone had to pay for the damages. Someone had to pay for the wall that had just been knocked down, and they couldn't ignore that it didn't happen. Right? You can't just pretend, they can't put like trash bags over the wall and pretend like it didn't happen. Someone had to pay for the wall to be replaced. And you couldn't pretend like it didn't happen. Do you see where I'm going, anybody? Okay. Sin is like the offense of driving into the wall of Aqua Reef. Sin must be paid for. Its broken effects are real, and someone must offer to fix them. It can be the sinner, the driver, or the sinned against, the owner of the restaurant. Someone must pay. Forgiveness is the owner offering to fix the aqua reef wall himself. That's what forgiveness is. The sin against cancels the debt and absorbs the cost of the offense. Forgiveness involves suffering because it bears sin's cost. Do you get that? In this case, it's financial suffering and a financial cost. Does it seem unrealistic to you, to me, that the owner of the aqua roof would pick up the tab? Yeah, sure, you couldn't stop. I believe you. Here, let me pay for the, pay for the wall all by myself. And you're not going to pay anything for it. I feel like that seems really unrealistic. But do you realize what seems so unrealistic to us in our human world? It's so very real to God in our relationship with him. Verse 27, we read, And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. Do you get this? That God forgives. God forgives the most outrageous $5 billion debt. He's absorbed the cost of sin for those who believe that he's done it. All the past, present, and future sins that you could commit... Every unkind word, every hateful thought, every selfish action has been paid for and even prepaid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. How has God absorbed the moral and spiritual cost of all of our sin? Through suffering for his people, through the precious, costly lifeblood of his son Jesus Christ. You receive generous forgiveness by believing it's true. Here's the truth about the gospel. You and I do nothing 
He does everything. And because of this free gift, we're called, like the servant in this parable, to go out and to forgive others who offend us. But why is this so difficult? Let's be honest, let's be real. Why is it so difficult to go out and forgive other people? Look at verse 28. The servant, you and I, immediately comes to face with, face-to-face with another person that owes him money. Again, a very realistic scenario. And that person begs forgiveness. The same exact language. The same exact language. Have patience with me and I will pay you. This person owes us a hundred talents. He or she is dealt roughly $10,000 worth of debt. $10,000 worth of hurt. And these hateful words and selfish actions feel like a lot for us to forgive. And let's be frank, because that's a lot to forgive. It will hurt something terrible to forgive because all forgiveness involves suffering. We pay for the hurt against us by refusing to hurt that person. That's what forgiveness is. And refusing to hurt someone in return is suffering, by definition. But let me assure you this, that hurting someone else will not make you feel better, and that's why forgiveness works. But something deep inside of us thinks it does, and so that's why forgiveness is hard. But let me be real concrete and real practical for you guys. What does it look like? What does the suffering of forgiveness really look like? Let me just give you a scenario. Say you had like a real honest moment, and you told somebody you really cared about a secret, a deep, dark, personal secret from your past. Or maybe your present. Maybe it was something like you were abused sexually as a child. Something really important and very emotional. Or maybe it's you're addicted. You're addicted to pornography or addicted to drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. And this person that you told said, I will never tell a soul. I will never tell a soul. And then all of a sudden, like the next week at school, everybody knew. They had told everybody they knew. What does forgiveness look like in that scenario? If you forgive that person, you'll make a commitment to not throw that betrayal back in his face. Even when he makes a similar mistake, it doesn't keep a secret in the future. You don't bring up the past. If you forgive that person, you're making a commitment to not put that betrayal before other people's faces. You don't tell other people, hey, that person doesn't keep secrets. Let me tell you the story about how they ruined my life. You don't say that to feel better about yourself. If you forgive that person, you make a commitment to not dwell on that accusation in your own mind. You don't dwell on the betrayal and say, every problem in my life is due to the fact that this person told my secret. Does everyone follow what I'm talking about? That's what forgiveness looks like, and that's why it involves suffering. Imagine how hard that is. It's extremely hard. Clearly, forgiveness is hard to practice. And our parable reflects this reality. Verses 28 through 30, the just recently forgiven servant refuses to forgive a lesser debt. Why? Why? It's hard, but why else? Why is it so hard to forgive other people when we've forgiven so very much by God? Think about the context of that parable. He's forgiven $5 billion. Then the next second, he can't forgive 10000 There are two reasons I think this is the case, why it's so hard. First, we fail to forgive people because we fail to understand that forgiveness is two things. It's both a one-time process, or one-time act, excuse me, and an ongoing process. By the way, like a lot of this technical explanation of forgiveness comes from Paul Tripp and Tim Lane. 
Okay, I'm borrowing a lot of it. So forgiveness is a one-time act and an ongoing process. So forgiveness is a one-time declaration. Let's just be real here, okay? Most of us live in this realm called Christian guilt. If you're a Christian, you have a lot of Christian guilt. And when the, when the topic forgiveness comes out, it's like you just want to vomit. Because you're like, oh, right, 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 I'm supposed to forgive people. And so when someone does something wrong, you're like, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. And I'm not saying forgiveness is bad, but maybe we need to think about and pause and stop and consider the cost of the sin against us before we so quickly and automatically, out of guilt, forgive other people. Instead of just trying to hold our nose and get through it, what if we looked and counted the cost of sin? What if we counted the suffering of what it's going to take to bear the weight of someone else's sin? What if we earnestly took some time to figure out what exactly happened and what the future will look like with us trying to earnestly forgive out of love and not guilt? Forgiveness is also a process. Even with the right motives... The process of refusing to bring a wrong to mind can be long and hard and full of personal failure. Do you realize that? We need to rely on God's forgiveness of our forgiveness in order to forgive anybody. And I think so many people drop into this idea that when they're deeply wounded by someone else, they don't actually rely on the fact that Jesus was wounded for us. He's the only God that has wounds. The second reason we fail to forgive is because we fail to remember or even consistently believe that we had a $5 billion debt that we owed to God. And that on the cross of Jesus Christ, it was nailed once and for all. It was finished. Verses 31 through 35 tell us that we often fail to forgive other people's debts because we forget how great and deep our own debt is. In other words, when we begin to think that our moral, spiritual debt was not that big, we walk away from Aqua Reef and pretend like the wall didn't just get knocked down and everything's fine. Think about it with the servant in the parable. To him, $10,000 worth of someone else's debt looks horrific, okay? I want you to think about the scene. This guy comes to him and says, I owe you money. And he says, you've got to pay me. And he says, I'm sorry. And then, you know what he's thinking at that time? Maybe he's thinking... Man, I'm not perfect, but I would never do this to somebody else. Never. Or maybe it's like, he's strangling, as he's strangling the man and throwing him into prison, he's thinking, ah, I may mess up, but I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. There's no way I would do that. I'm not a disgusting human being like this guy. Remember, according to the parable, our problems, the servant's problems are our problems. And many of us fail to understand this point just how badly we act and how badly we are. It's one of these things like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, the reason that your youth ministers keep telling you to shower and use deodorant is because you don't smell your own stink. You just don't, okay? And you think, oh, this is lovely. Um, But no one else does, okay? And this is why everyone else stinks and you never stink. And that's a lot like sin. You can see everyone else's sin, but it's very hard to see your own sin. I love what John Owen says. He's an 18th century pastor and theologian. And he puts our $5 billion debt squarely before eyes. He says this beautiful quote. The seed of every known sin is in my heart. The seed of every known sin is in my heart. It's by God's kindness and it alone that we don't do worse things. 
I want you to think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. The sin that you blew your life with. That you think if like this came out in the youth retreat, they might just send you home in the van right now. Okay? Think about that sin. And think about how much worse it would be if you grew up in an abusive family and had less ability, not more, to control your impulses. I love this. Uh, is everyone familiar with Sukhan Stevens? He's a, he's a Christian artist up in Michigan. And he wrote this song called John Wayne Gacy Jr. It's about a serial killer, John Wayne Gacy Jr. This, this guy dressed up like a clown and, and killed 27 boys and stuffed them underneath his house. Sick and messed up. In Illinois, apparently, because it's from Illinois. Um, listen to what Sufjan Stevens has to say about his own heart in that song. And it's gorgeous. In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. John Wayne Gacy Jr. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. So he's saying, in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Stevens is right. Our debt is big. It's bigger than we think it is. But remember the parable. Jesus' grace, God's grace, is bigger, far bigger than we can imagine, and bigger than our debt. The fact that the king can absorb the cost of $5 million at that moment is beautiful. No matter how deep our sin is, Jesus' grace is deeper. Our debt has been paid once and for all by a generous king who died as a debtor so that we could not just be at zero morally, but we could be infinitely rich. We are rich in Jesus' righteousness if we believe in him. And we're rich enough to pay many times over the $10,000 worth of damages that people give us. Let me conclude with a story. It's from a a preacher named Tim Keller. I I would love to pawn this off as if I had read this World War II autobiography, but that's just not the case. Okay? Um, It's it's an autobiography by Ernest Gordon, uh, and it's through the Valley of Kwai. It's from the the Bridge of the River Kwai, the movie's based on it. Again, I don't even know that reference, and I'm old, so you you definitely don't know that reference. Um, Anyway, Gordon was an Allied soldier, and he was captured by the Japanese in the Pacific theater of World War II. Okay? So he's in a baton death camp. One day, Gordon and the other uh, prisoners come back from a hard day of manual labor. And there's this normal count that happens. They count all of the prisoners and all of the tools, right? And so they start counting, and all the prisoners are there. But then they start counting, and they're missing a tool. They're missing a shovel. And the Japanese guard gets extremely angry extremely angry, and gets very distressed and starts shouting in broken English that the shovel's missing. And the guard immediately thinks the shovel's been stolen, which is a huge deal in a prisoner of war camp because that's a way of escaping. And so the guard gets more and more angry, and he gets his rifle and he puts it on his shoulder and says, all must die. All must die. And he lines up all the prisoners and he puts his rifle in a scope next to the first prisoner and intends to shoot him and go down the line and kill everybody. The shovel. And immediately a man from the Argyle Regiment steps forward, salutes at attention, and says, I did it. I stole the shovel. And the guard is ticked. He starts punching the man over and over and over again. He takes his rifle, holds it by the barrel, and starts slamming against the guy's skull. 
Meanwhile, the guy is stiffly at attention, blood smearing down his face. And then he falls to the ground. He's dead. His skull has been cracked open by the barrel of the gun. But the guard is not satisfied and kicks him and punches him and spits on him until there's no possible way that they could do, the guard can do anything else because he's so tired. And so, after this incredibly gruesome scene, all of the other prisoners of war pick up their fellow prisoner and carry him back to camp. And when they get back into camp, they do another count. One prisoner missing, because he's dead. All of the shovels were there. All of them. They weren't missing a shovel at all. Do you realize that all of those prisoners of war were saved by one man? The Argyle Regiment and his self-sacrifice? He was obviously innocent, but he thought, me for them, and he took the blame. What about the prisoners like Ernest Gordon? Don't you think they'd be forever changed by this soldier's sacrifice, by this man who took the blame for something he didn't do? How could they ever think the same way about their lives, about themselves? Wouldn't they want to be less selfish people? I hope you realize that this story is not just about Thailand in the 1940s. This story is pointing to the true story of an innocent man, the very God of the universe, who died 2,000 years ago on a hill which was a bone dump outside of Israel. In Israel. Jesus Christ thought me for them and he took the blame. God isn't angry over shovels that aren't missing. He's angry over sin. He's angry over the debt of sin and the cost of it on our relationships and on his relationship with us. But on the cross, Jesus did suffer to pay the price for all the debt of my sin. Now if I believe this, if I really believe that this is true, won't it change who I am? Won't it change what I do? Won't it change the way that I relate to other people? How can I ever live the same way in light of that? How can we not want to be less selfish and better people in light of what Jesus Christ has done? Because it changes us at a heart, not an example level. All of a sudden saying hi to near strangers, or being the person that always calls and always invites people out, becomes a little less like death. All of a sudden doing hard things becomes easier to bear. Hard things even for selfish and hating people becomes easier to bear. Easier to forgive. Because the God of the universe died to absorb $5 billion of our personal damages. What are a few dollars of rudeness compared to that infinite, enormous, canceled debt? Would you pray with me? <laughs> Father, uh, we're thankful. <laughs> I mean, that just doesn't even describe what, what's going on. I, I can't even believe that you just waved at like that. That you take it on yourself and the suffering and the cost of it. It's not like it never happened. It happened. And it happened to you. And I just, um, I look at myself and I look at my heart um, and look at who I am and what I do. And I think, what in the world? What in the world's wrong with me? And what in the world is right with you that you would make me right? And I pray, Father, that we would know Jesus Christ. We would know him fully and we would be rich in his righteousness. But Lord, um, you died 
You got wounds for our wounds. You died to make us clean again. And I pray that that would affect the way that we live. I pray that that would affect the way that we love other people. I pray that it would affect the way that um, we go about our lives, helping us to repent, to forgive this side of heaven. And I pray, Father, for this weekend that it wouldn't just stop here for all of us, me included. I just pray that some of the things we've talked about would really touch our lives, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude. That we move forward, loving other people, in your name, Jesus. Boldly confessing our sins. Boldly embracing other people's hurts. We ask for this power by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.